the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. The Law Offices of Selwyn Whitehead is a debt relief agency under federal law and provides legal assistance to consumers seeking debt relief under the United States Bankruptcy Code. This is Selwyn's Law. Every week at this time, we get to hear from Selwyn Whitehead. She's not just an attorney at law. Selwyn knows her stuff and doesn't shy away from the truth, even when it's ugly. Her Bay Area practice focuses on helping her clients to manage their wealth through estate and tax planning, to managing their debt through reconstruction or bankruptcy. And now, it's time for Selwyn's Law. She's been certified by the State Bar of California's Board of Legal Specialization. And as I've shared with you in the past, in addition to my JD, I also hold a couple of master's degrees in law. That is to say, I'm both the master of the laws of taxation law and a master of the laws of intellectual property laws. Now, because of my education, my training, my experiences, my observations, and my lifelong interest in business and money and finance and the creation, preservation, and transfer of wealth within families and communities and the roles these particular aspects of economics play in the lives of everyday people like you and me, I primarily practice bankruptcy law. And I also practice debt wealth management, estates and trusts, real estate, and of course, taxation law. Now with these areas of law as my reference points as they relate to the personal, familial, community, and small business financial issues, I spent the greater part of the last 40 years, both before and after getting my license to practice law, fighting for the economic empowerment, the economic independence, and the economic autonomy of women, people of color, communities of color, including indigenous communities. And because I grew up as a military brat and also helped create one with my former spouse, I know firsthand how hard it can be economically, that is to say, for our citizen soldiers in our sometimes less than patriotic, capitalistic economic system. Now, as such, I also proudly serve veterans of all stripes and in all branches of the military. And when the situation is right, I am sometimes able to at least attempt to vindicate the rights of seniors who find themselves, ourselves, the targets more and more, and unfortunately, uh, the victims of some of the most pernicious forms of financial elder abuse that you could ever imagine that's running rampant in our society today. So I'm coming to you again today to discuss some of the financial and legal issues confronting individuals, families, and small business owners. However, again, I must ask you to please note that this show does not provide any legal advice, nor am I developing an attorney-client relationship with anyone within the sound of my voice. Instead, this show strives strictly to serve as an educational forum for the exchange of information from me to you that might be helpful to you as you begin your search for more detailed information that's tailored to your specific set of facts and circumstances and hopefully provide you with at least an outline of some of the key issues that may help you seek out and find the qualified professional help. I sincerely believe you need if you have a legal issue that intersects with your finances and or your other assets. 
You know, 30 years ago, in November of 1991, I received the great honor of being chosen as the only non-Japanese recipient of the Japan Pacific Resource Network's Diversity in the 1990s Award. Now, just so you know, the Japan Pacific Resource Network is a San Francisco-based nonprofit public interest educational organization that was founded in 1985 and continues its work in the pursuit of a more just international society by promoting civil rights, corporate social responsibility, and community empowerment in the context of the United States-Japan relationship. Now, JPRN carries out its mission through research and educational projects, bilingual, technical assistance, and cross-cultural networking. JPRN's programs emphasize community leadership, development, volunteerism, and coalition building. Now, the other two honorees uh, that evening were the Reverend Nobuyaka Hanokai, and who was then the pastor of the Japanese United Methodist Church up in Sacramento, who was recognized for his great work with JPRN and uh, an organization that I interface with, the African-Asian American Roundtable. And the final awardee was the Berkeley, California-based Takara Saki Company, who, through its philanthropic efforts in support of community organizations such as the JPRN, was lauded for its corporate citizenship. Now, instead of the standard plaques usually given out at these events containing engraved or stenciled words of praise, we three were given individualized works of art in the form of Japanese calligraphy by artist and calligrapher, a woman by the name of Aoki and Kayum. Now, the Reverend's plaque contained the Japanese character for heart, mind, and soul. Quite appropriate for a member of the clergy, I thought. And the Saki Company's plaque uh, contained the Japanese character for celebration, which was an appropriate moniker for um, this event where you and I might imbibe some of the co- company's libation. Now, as for my work of art, which I cherish to this day and look at daily, it contained the Japanese character for green. Now, the artist told me, she informed me that green in my plaque stood for green lining based on what she had been informed was my definition of the word that's the opposite of redlining, a practice that I've talked about on this show before where corporations tend to exclude minority and low-income areas from having access to banking products and services and insurance coverage. So my plaque was an homage to my work as the first executive director of the Greenlining Coalition, which was reported in the Bay Area and Japanese news media at the time as a group of minority women and low-income neighborhood organizations which strives for equitable distribution of financial resources. 
Now, my award was for the fact that under my leadership, the Green Line and Coalition had succeeded in negotiating a Community Reinvestment Act with Union Bank of California, then a subsidiary of the Bank of Tokyo wherein the bank agreed to earmark at least $6 million a year in perpetuity to be used as working capital for minority and women-owned businesses throughout California. And the bank agreed to select and place on its board at least one woman and two people of color. Now, reflecting back on the event, I remember sharing my thoughts with the members of the bilingual audience that were in attendance, and I shared with them that I'd like for them to think of green as the blossoming of oneself and the blossoming of one's community. The idea that if one has an integrated life, one could pay attention to both their own needs while doing so at the same time and being concerned with and making a contribution to the community as a whole. However, as great an honor it, as it was being recognized and receiving this beautiful work of art, JPRN also selected me to be a member of a three-person delegation of economists and financial services industry advocates to go to Japan and raise awareness of the need for corporate social responsibility throughout Japan. So, a few days after the beautiful award ceremony, I was off to Japan for a two-week speaking tour that began on November 8, 1991. Now, upon our arrival in Japan, which I got to tell you in case you've never been there, is one of the most beautiful places on God's green planet. Once there, we met with groups large and small, including members of the Japanese parliament, known as the Imperial Diet, some of the officers and directors of the Bank of Tokyo, the Japanese finance minister, academics, community-based organizations, including a group of African-American female executives who are expatriates and live and work in Japan. Now, we also met with groups of people who have and continue to be members of the minority community in Japan, although they're Japanese themselves, and they are treated as the others, such as the Burakumin people, former untouchables in Japan and at the bottom of the traditional social hierarchy. Barakamen were originally ethnic Japanese people with occupations that were considered to be out, outlandish uh, during the Japan feudal era, such as executioners, undertakers, slaughterhouse workers, butchers, or tanners. Barakamen became a hereditary status of untouchability and an unofficial caste lower caste in the Takagawa caste system during the Edo period of Japan. Barakamen were victims of severe discrimination and ostracism in Japanese society and lived as outcasts in their own separate villages or in ghettos. Barakamen's status was officially abolished by the Meiji Restoration in 1868, but the descendants of Barakamen people have since still face stigmatization and discrimination in Japan. I trust you can see the parallel between Barakamen and members of the African-American diaspora here in the United States. But as I prepared this show almost 30 years to the day for, I returned from my very enlightening trip from Japan, the group that springs to the forefront of my mind were the women of Korean descent that at the time I didn't even know existed. 
They were women who had either been kidnapped outright or lured into Japanese-controlled territory by chicanery and once there forced to act as sex, sex slaves for the Japanese per, uh, Imperial Army that occupied Korea as early as 1910, but during the war period between 1937 and 1945, a group of women known as the Comfort Women. Now, when we come back from our break, I'll share the story of the Korean Comfort Women and their descendants living in Japan and use their story as one of my focal points for a discussion on the status of women and girls in the 2021 edition. But first, we'll take a short break and I'll see you on the other side. Wealthy or not, if you have loved ones depending on you, you need a properly crafted will and estate plan. Protect your assets and your loved ones with help from the law services of Selwyn Whitehead, the Bay Area attorney whose expertise is sought by families and small businesses throughout Northern California. Selwyn can help you prepare the necessary documents and avoid potential consequences you might not have considered. For a free one-hour consultation, call 888-599-0504 or click selwynwhitehead.com. Struggling with mounting debt? Make the best of a difficult situation by counting on the law services of Selwyn Whitehead, the Bay Area attorney whose expertise is sought by families and small businesses throughout Northern California. Selwyn can help you manage your debt through debt restructuring or bankruptcy and can help you deal with the IRS. For a free one-hour consultation, call 888-599-0504 or click selwynwhitehead.com. The law offices of Selwyn Whitehead is a debt relief agency under the federal law and provides legal assistance to consumers seeking relief under the United States. States Bankruptcy Code. Now back to Selwyn's Law. Once again, your host, Selwyn Whitehead. Welcome back to Selwyn's Law as we continue our discussion of the State of Women and Girls 2021 edition, using as my focal point today a group of women that I first met 30 years ago this month the Korean comfort women who were used and abused as sex slaves by the Japanese Imperial Army that controlled Korea between as early as uh, 1910, but definitely during the war period of 1937 through 1945 when World War II ended. Now, my source for this report are several, including several news services and the scholarly works of people that I have used over the year. But I want to share with you a riveting article by K.M. Costile for the History Net LLC news service, excerpts from which I have slightly edited and I'll share with you now. Hang Kong Jung, a Korean girl, was 18 when she was drafted, in quotation marks, by the Japanese to work in a factory. Trucked off to Manchuria, she was billeted in a freezing barracks and assigned a Japanese name. The day after her arrival, an officer ordered her into a small room and told her what she wanted her to do or she would be killed. He then ordered her to remove her clothes. It was like a bolt from the sky, she later said. My long braid clearly showed I was a virgin. I told him no. When she continued to resist, he ripped off and cut off her clothes. She fainted only to wake up in a pool of blood. That was just the beginning of the horror she would experience as a sex slave for Japanese troops. 
the war creates strange euphemisms, but one of the most twisted has come to be comfort women. These women, an estimated 50,000 to 200,000, were held as slaves to sexually satisfy Japanese soldiers between 1937 and 1945 during the Sino-Japanese War and World War II. For almost 50 years afterwards, their stories were virtually unknown. Even now, the tragedy of comfort women is shrouded in controversy, particularly over what these women are owed for their suffering. Promised legitimate work, they left behind lives of hardship and took a chance for a better future. Despite their terrible wartime experiences, several not only survived the war, but overcame their deep emotional scars and found the courage to tell their stories now. The vast majority of comfort women were uneducated rural Koreans between the age of 14 and 18, whose poverty and circumstances left them vulnerable to exploitation. Throughout the women's short lives, the Japanese had been the colonial overlords, and the Korean gentry, for that matter, in the Korean gentry, for that matter, any man in particular society were their superiors. The future held little more for them than destitution. So when men showed up in their villages offering good work in Japan or Japanese factories or in frontline hospitals, along with a chance to learn and lead a better lives, the more courageous of these little village girls signed on. Their recruiters became their captors, shipping the girls off to faraway places in Japanese-held territory. They were confused by their rough treatment and neglect, but most seemed to believe they'd be given the work they were promised until the appalling reality became clear. They were soon placed hard up against the front lines to provide comfort to young Japanese soldiers, sailors, and airmen. This so-called comfort work cost the women their dignity, their sense of self, and much more. Many attempted suicide or escaped, and some succeeded. The remaining tens of thousands could never predict what fresh horror lied ahead. Because the comfort stations were placed on the front line so the troops could have ready access to the women and girls, they lived under the same smoke and gunfire and bombings as the men did. But they were also humiliated, infected, turned, got pregnant, and suffered diseases. The standard treatment for syphilis was a shot of the dreaded number 606, also known as cerevalis, which is an arsenic-based drug that caused fertility and maybe even death. The men were ordered to wear protections, and, but some refused. As such, the women ended up recycling the protection, which didn't provide them with very much. Ironically, fear of venereal disease and a desire to maintain order compelled the imperial military to establish these frontline comfort stations, inasmuch as after 1932, when the Japanese invaded Shanghai, there 
because of some of the activities of the soldiers the in occupying Shanghai, the local villages really ran amok. And so they thought that having brothels on the front lines was a way to make sure that spies and other people that infiltrated or wanted to infiltrate the front lines was the best way to handle this. And that's why these women ended up there. So by the end of World War II, the Japanese military had comfort stations in all their occupied territories, manned, in quotation marks, by women abducted or recruited under false pretense, such as even some that were prepubescent. Nonetheless, all the women were permanently wounded, physically, emotionally, and spiritually. At war's end, many were abandoned. They simply woke up one day to find the Japanese had deserted their stations. In some cases, when the men did not leave, the women and the troops were expected to commit seppuku, suicide, an expression of loyalty to the emperor, to the emperor such that information about these travesties would not be known. But thousands persevered somehow made their way to safety, usually on their own, sometimes via ally or Japanese transport. Even those journeys were fraught. Several transport ships were torpedoed, and the women who made it back to Korea had to endure another war for five more years. However, others stayed on in Japanese territory, and these were some of the women that I met. Most of the survivors, regardless of where they settled, lived as virtual ghosts, haunted and humiliated by the ordeal, too ashamed to speak of it in society where female chastity was prized. It was not until the early 1990s that your tragedies came to light. Several women's group and scholars pursued the issue of wartime sex slave, and in 1991, the former comfort women sued the Japanese government. And it was in that time frame, 30 years ago this month, that I had the great honor to meet some of these surviving women. So, when we get together next time, I'll share with you the outcome of their lawsuits, which just happened this year, all these many years later. Uh, but we're going to leave it here for now. But as always in closing, I like to say here at Selwyn's Law, we always want to stay on the right side of the law, including laws that should rectify the rights of injured parties, especially little girls, no matter how long it takes. But in the meantime, please get vaccinated. And if you're like me, and it's been six months since your second inoculation, get yourself boosted. And even if you have all your shots, and especially if you don't, please not let the holiday season fool you. Please keep your social distance, mask up, and wash your hands. Till next time, take care. 
Thank you for taking the time to listen to Selwyn's Law. Remember, the law office of Selwyn Whitehead is a designated debt relief agency under the federal law and provides legal assistance to consumers seeking relief under the bankruptcy code. When it comes to your finances and your rights, seek no other than the law office of Selwyn Whitehead. Selwyn is your go-to finance attorney, specializing in estate planning, wealth management, bankruptcy, tax, and real estate law. In other words, Selwyn knows her way around the dollar, and your rights are protected by our laws. Protect your money. Know your rights. Partner with Selwyn Whitehead. For immediate assistance, or if you have questions, call 510-633-1276, 510-633-1276, or go to SelwynWhitehead.com. The preceding paid program is sponsored by the law office of Selwyn Whitehead, who is solely responsible for its content. Wealthy or not, if you have loved ones depending on you, you need a properly crafted will and estate plan. Protect your assets and your loved ones with help from the law services of Selwyn Whitehead, the Bay Area attorney whose expertise is sought by families and small businesses throughout Northern California. Selwyn can help you prepare the necessary documents and avoid potential consequences you might not have considered. For a free one-hour consultation, call 888-599-0504 or click selwynwhitehead.com. Struggling with mounting debt? Make the best of a difficult situation by counting on the law services of Selwyn Whitehead, the Bay Area attorney whose expertise is sought by families and small businesses throughout Northern California. Selwyn can help you manage your debt through debt restructuring or bankruptcy and can help you deal with the IRS. For a free one-hour consultation, call 888-599-0504 or click selwynwhitehead.com. The law offices of Selwyn Whitehead is a debt relief agency under the federal law and provides legal assistance to consumers seeking relief under the United States. States bankruptcy code. Struggling with mounting debt? Make the best of a difficult situation by counting on the law services of Selwyn Whitehead, the Bay Area attorney whose expertise is sought by families and small businesses throughout Northern California. Selwyn can help you manage your debt through debt restructuring or bankruptcy and can help you deal with the IRS. For a free one-hour consultation, call 888-599-0504 or click selwynwhitehead.com. The law offices of Selwyn Whitehead is a debt relief agency under the federal law and provides legal assistance to consumers seeking relief under the United States Bankruptcy Code. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.